Good day to be here. Good day to be with you all and in the presence of God, the house of God, to worship the living God who has demonstrated his love to each of us here in so many different ways, but most especially through his son whom he sent into this world, born as a baby, born in that stable, in order to take our sins away. And what we want to do for the next few minutes is just spend a little bit of time in prayer. And I'd like to invite all of you uh, to pray uh, right where you are, silently and in your heart, about whatever might be in your heart. And the God who hears those prayers can answer those prayers. And then after an appropriate time, I'll close us publicly about some things that we as a church are concerned about. So would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that, um, that we can come to you um, not in our own merit, but in the name of your Son, Jesus, and that we can present our requests to you, knowing full well that those things that we care about, um, those things that are close to our hearts, those things that we are in need of, that you care about those more than we do. And we believe that you have the power to answer our prayers and that you always do so in accordance with your wisdom and love. And so all around this room this morning, indeed all across our nation and all around the globe, your people have been praying. And you hear those prayers. And Lord, you and your goodness answer. And we thank you for that invitation to bring those requests to you. We thank you for the privilege we have to pray for others. Today we want to remember Paul Cassidy and his family and the passing of his dad. One of our missionaries, Lord, who was called home unexpectedly for the funeral of his father. We appreciate, Lord, that his dad knew you. And we thank you for your grace and your goodness to him and to his family. We lift up Pauline Doolin, Lord, as she continues to be in the hospital in serious condition. And we ask that you would be with her and that her and her whole family would know your peace and your presence. Remember our brother Dan Richardson at the passing of his mom. We thank you for her faith and we pray for your continued comfort and encouragement to Dan and to all the family. 
for our brother Dick Durbin. We ask that you would continue to be with him, that he would continue in his long walk with you through this uh, time of illness and cancer. And that through all of this, Lord, you would be lifted up and you would be glorified. We remember little Dahlia, Lord, and ask for your grace and your mercy to her. We pray that you would be with her and that at the right time, uh, Lord, that you would heal, heal that hole in her heart or lead the doctors to surgery. We thank you for the faith of her parents and their trust in you. And we pray that you would continue to encourage them and bless them. And Father, it was good yesterday to see our brother Dick Bennett at the wedding. We thank you for what you've done in his life and for his faith in you. And Lord, too, today we thank you for Jim and Tammy and for their commitment to one another. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless them in their life together. And we thank you for allowing them to be a part of this church and a part of our lives. And Father, we do come here today um, looking for something more than, uh, than we can find anywhere else. We come here looking for, um, for a word from you, uh, for a touch from your hand. We come, Lord, expecting uh, to meet you and to meet with your people. And we know we need that. Father, I confess I need that. And I pray, Father, that you would forgive this preacher his sins. For they are many. And yet, Lord, we ask, in spite of my failure and our sin. that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, kids... Uh, are they already all out? Any left? Okay, all right. So I don't even have to dismiss them for children's church. That's a good thing. Okay, so our scripture reading today comes from the book of Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is what we read there. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, says, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, uh, we're here. <laughs> we're right in the thick of the Christmas season. And it is a busy time of the year. There are presents to buy and 
wrap and to deliver. There are people to visit and to call on the phone and to send cards to. There are school programs and parades and plays and things going on at church. There's the traffic and the crowds and the sales, which uh, complicate an already complicated agenda. And there are all the normal things that go on in life which still must be attended to, such as work and school and cooking and cleaning, and I don't know what all else there is. And then there are those who are constantly reminding us, and we need the reminder, we ought not to forget the real reason for the season. And all the hustle and the bustle they tell us, uh, let's not lose the Christ in Christmas. After all, he got the whole thing started. And as followers of Jesus, we know that, don't we? We understand that. And, And even those who are on the outside of the faith, many of them anyway, recognize that there ought to be more to the holiday than just Santa Claus and the giving and getting of presents and the enjoyment of food. And everyone understands, or at least most everyone does, that this really is supposed to be a season of hope and peace. And it's even really the season of promise. The first Christmas came as a fulfillment of God's promise to send a Savior, a promise that that went all the way back into the uh, Garden of Eden and recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, but a promise that was really made before time began and which was reiterated throughout the Scriptures uh, all the way down until Jesus himself came. And that promise kept people looking for God. They kept the people of God hoping for him and living for that day. And now we wait, uh, don't we, for the fulfillment of another promise. We wait for the fulfillment of the return of Jesus, our King, that Jesus Christ really is coming back. And he will return to this earth one day. And when he does, all sorts of other promises would be fulfilled. And when you understand the nature of promises in general, and God's promises especially, that they, they're given to give us uh, hope and to keep us looking ahead and and they encourage us to live the way we ought to live, then you begin to have a better appreciation of those promises. You see, God gave us his promises to turn our hearts in the right direction. And so life goes on all around us. I mean, good things and bad things happen. The world seems sometimes to change right out from under our feet, and we so easily find ourselves turning in circles. And the promises of God point us uh, back into the right direction, and they bring stability back into our lives. And so this morning, in in keeping with the idea that this is a season of promise, and, and yet one in which we can find ourselves overwhelmed and even disoriented, and also as we continue in our study of the book of Revelation, we're going to look at some of God's promises as found in the seven letters to the seven churches. So I would invite you to join me, please, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, last week we kind of began an introduction to the, those two chapters, and 
This kind of continues that introduction, looking at the promises that are made there. And uh, sometime after the holidays, we'll pick up back in, uh, in this book, and we'll look at the letters individually, one at a time, and we'll see what we can learn from those. But the promises we find here in, uh, in this section, in the seven letters uh, to the seven churches, really do fall in three broad categories. First, there are two promises uh, in that section of Scripture which apply to specific churches and the specific situation in which they found themselves. They're not really general in nature. They're not applicable across the board. And it's a comfort for us to know, I think, that uh, God is so intimately involved in our lives and in our churches that he offers promises that are as specific as that. And it's a comfort to know, I think, too, that if you ever found yourself in such a place or you found your church in a similar place, you could look to those promises as meant for you also. But again, they don't fit most churches in most situations. And then there are some promises that we find that really apply um, to our time together, our life right now in, uh, as we live in this world. They remind believers of God's companionship here and now and that he's working in them and through them. But we're really not going to look at those promises today. Instead, we're going to look at a different category, the final category we're going to consider. And those are the promises that really apply to the future. They're the things that we can only look forward to right now. But when we do that, when we, when we look forward to those things, when we take them to heart, when we pay attention to them, then they affect the way that we live here and now. And since some of the promises are repeated and they appear in different forms and in different places in those seven letters. We're, we're not going to look at them in any particular order, not at least as they in the, uh, appear in the text. Rather, we're going to consider them more or less uh, by subject. And so if I were to talk to almost any of you or stop someone on the street and ask about one of the future promises that we might find, of a promise of God, uh, almost everyone would uh, say the first thing most people would think of is the promise of eternal life. And, and, and there's so much that is said about that throughout scriptures and our writings and, and our thoughts. And uh, we're going to spend some time there, but it, it's so familiar to us that it's so easy for us to almost overlook it and not think about it a whole lot. And yet it really is worth remembering. And indeed, it really is the first promise that you find in the seven letters. And so John tells the Ephesian church that I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, of course, that's a picture, right? That's a symbolism. The tree of life represents eternal life. And, And that was always God's intention for his people. It's always God's intention for humankind that they would live forever. So that tree of life was found in the Garden of Eden, and there was no prohibition about eating that fruit. They could have partaken of that at any time that they wanted. And yet, once sin entered the picture, then God in his mercy kept that tree from those people because to live in that state of sin forever would be the worst possible condition. 
And so the first promise of eternal life appears uh, in um, Revelation, and that's that first promise there. And that concept of eternal life is so important. It, it's so uh, that it, it's so much referred to um, that several more times uh, it's referred to in different symbols and in different places, and, and from also a positive and a negative perspective. For example, Jesus told those in Smyrna, I will give you life as a victor's crown. And then a little bit more cryptically, he says, well, uh, I will give you some of the hidden manna, which at the very least points to God's provision throughout eternity. So manna was the food that God supplied it to the Israelites as they made their way through the uh, desert. And this is God's food, and it's hidden. It's hidden with God, and it's not available to anyone else, only to those who belong to God, and only once we are with him in heaven. So it points to God's provision for us and to eternal life. Now, two of the churches, um, because of their particular situation, Jesus assured them of eternal life, but he did so by promising not to condemn them. And so speaking to the church in Smyrna, Jesus said this, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. And to the church in Sardis, he said, I will never blot your name from the book of life. And so these two churches, for different reasons, needed to hear that. They needed to hear that if they overcame when all else was said and done, they would not be condemned. Now, you know, sometimes children need to, uh, to hear that kind of thing from us. They need to hear what we will not do. Many of us, maybe even most of us, have been in a conversation on one side or the other that goes something like this. The little girl says to her father, Daddy, don't leave me. He replies, I'll be right here. Yes, but don't leave me, Daddy. To which the dad says, I won't leave you, sweetie. I'll be right here. That little one needs to hear those words, I won't leave you. And these churches needed to hear what Jesus had to say to them when he said that he wouldn't condemn them. We need to hear that too. We know that Jesus has given us eternal life, but how often do we need that encouragement to know that he will never turn his back on us, he will never let go of us, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what we might do. He's promised us eternal life, and he's promised to keep us forever, and we will never be separated from him. And that eternal life is that first of the promises that we find in the seven letters. And and whenever I talk about eternal life to people, I have to remind everyone that we're we're not just talking about length of time. You, You understand that, don't you? I mean, to live forever in a state of evil is not a blessing. It's a it's a curse. And when the Bible talks about eternal life, it means living forever in a state of unending and ever-increasing joy. It means life 
and not just existence. And so that first promise there in, uh, in, those, to, uh, in those letters is that promise of eternal life and the promise that Jesus will never turn his back on us. And that particular promise, I said, is the one I think that we think about most and that we are the most familiar with and probably, in a sense, is the most important one. I mean, without it, none of the rest of uh, the promises would mean a whole lot. But once you uh, know that one, then those other promises begin to fill out our understanding of what is yet to come. And I have to tell you that... um, that as we look at some of these other promises, some of them maybe will seem, well, maybe a little less important or appealing to us than others. And I think that some people in some situations in other parts of the world, uh, conditions are vastly different than what we're experiencing. Or even people in our own country have gone through things that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemies. I, I think to people like that, some of these will seem much more appealing than they would to you and I. For example, uh, for those who overcome, we're told that justice will be done. And so Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And that one, the one who's victorious, will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. You know, what that points at points to a kind of retribution in the sense of seeing that justice is done. Those nations that are opposed and persecuted the people of God will be brought to justice by the very ones that they so harshly ruled. And that same idea is present in the letter to the church of Philadelphia when Jesus says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews that they are not but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. See, in that day, in that place, there were, there were a group of Jewish people who didn't believe in the Messiah, and they persecuted the Christians there and caused them all sorts of problems. And Jesus said, one day they're going to have to fall before you and acknowledge that you're right. And again, you see there's a sense of justice. You see that God is making things happen that should happen to communicate his justice. And So those people persecuted the believers and they would receive uh, their comeuppance because of it. And you can understand something of what people... Uh, in those two churches felt and and why that promise is so meaningful to them. You can understand something that that people in our world today who are living in parts of our world where they're persecuted simply because they put their faith in Christ. Their property's taken, their children are kidnapped, and sometimes they're put to death. Maybe you can understand something about that, even though you haven't experienced it personally, if, uh, if you've ever been falsely accused by something. Or maybe you've simply been misunderstood and just haven't had a chance to make things right, tell people what you really meant. If you've ever been in that situation, you know how awful it is. You know how you just wish someone would come along. Someone would say, no, that's not right. That's not the truth. That's not what he meant. He didn't do that. That that justification, that justice means so much to people in that situation. And, And for those who have suffered actual 
persecution, that appeal to them would be so much stronger than it is to us. It's not even an appeal for uh, vengeance, but just a, simply a revealing of what is really true and right that we long for. And I think we all long for that. There's a sense of justice inside of our hearts that, that says we want right things to happen. We want sin to be punished where it's not repented of. And we want those who are falsely accusing others to be found out and demonstrated to be the people that they really are. And so in these letters, we have these promises. The first one is of eternal life and that Christ will never desert us. And these letters assure us of that in different places and and tell us that uh, justice will be done and that righteousness will rule. And that's what he means by ruling with an iron scepter. But there's another aspect of ruling that we find here in these chapters where the focus is a little bit different. Uh, so Jesus says to the Laodiceans, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So here I think the scope is really larger. It's not just seeing that justice is done, which will happen. I mean, there will come that day but once that happens there's never going to be a need for that again uh, it, it's uh, it will never uh, happen again injustice will never occur again and and so this is really referring to something more it's referring to the fact that we will rule on his throne and everything in creation will be subject to us maybe another way to put it is is that all of creation will be our home I think C.S. Lewis really illustrates that idea effectively in the closing chapters of the last book in the Narnia series, the, the uh, Last Battle, if you're familiar with that. You know, all of the main characters, if you've read that series that we've invested in, that we know through those books, find themselves in, uh, in heaven. And, um, and when they're there, they discover that they can run and not grow tired. And they can run as fast as dogs. And when they swim, they can swim like a speedboat. And they can climb mountains without any fear. They find that they can't even be afraid if they try. And they, they begin to realize that everything that was made was made for them. Made for them for once they reached that state of perfection. You see, they belong in they rule and everything bends to their will and their will is pure and it's sound and it's right and it's in harmony with everyone else. You see, our relationship with the creation then will be less like music played on an instrument, more like that which comes uh, out of our own lungs and diaphragm and throats. We'll be part of it and yet we will be over it all. When we sit with Christ on his throne, all of creation will be our home. And we'll have eternal life, we'll never be separated from Jesus, and we'll see justice done. Something else is going to occur in those days. There's uh, another promise that may mean more to us than we really can realize yet. You see, when Christ returns, when we find ourselves with him, in his kingdom, we're going to find our true selves. We'll find our 
real and unique identity. Every one of us will be told who we really are. It will be revealed to us by Christ. And that what Jesus, that's what Jesus means when he tells the church at Pergamum, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I think some of you, like me, can remember back to the days when, uh, when people were making statements like, uh, I'm just trying to find out who I am, man. <laughs> and people were being advised to discover their true self. And all of that might seem kind of quaint to us today, but there really is truth there, and it's not a new phenomenon. I think it was Aristotle who said, know thyself. There really is a longing in our human hearts to to know why we exist and, and who we really are. And for those of us who overcome, we're going to know that with a certainty. But when we remember the significance of what names mean in the Bible, that the, the very name of someone often tells us about that person, just as God's name tells us about him, that, that, then you understand what that white stone represents. It's not a secret. It's known only to the person. It's not a secret because only that one person can know it. Only that one person is going to be what that name on that white stone is. And every person who's there will have their own name. We will finally know who we really are and what we were created to be. And no one else fits that place in all of creation. We are utterly and completely unique. And we will be exactly what God intends us to be. And what we will be, we will like best of all, and we won't want to be anything else. Now look, I know most of you are like me. You know, sometimes you look at your life and you say, I wish I was someone else. I wish I was doing something else. I wish I had some other gift or some other ability. But when we're there with Christ, when that white stone with that name is handed to us, we'll know who we really are. We'll be exactly what God made us to be. And we won't want anything else. Now, of course, the most important aspect of our identity as Christians is that we belong to God wholly and completely. And so, as Jesus said to those in Sardis, I will acknowledge your name before my Father and his angels. And to those in Philadelphia, he says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. You see, we belong to God totally and completely. And Jesus acknowledges us before all of heaven. And he is, in effect, declaring... This one is mine, and we belong to each other forever. It's like the vows in a wedding ceremony. It's this commitment in public that these two people belong together. Here, when Jesus declares us, acknowledges us, he's declaring before the entire creation, everyone who's ever lived, that this one belongs to me. 
and we will hear God's name and we'll bear it. And we belong to his city. We belong to Jesus and he'll write those on us because we belong to him. Do you remember Toy Story? You know, Woody and Buzz are in a bad situation. They're in that neighbor's house, Sid, and the kid that destroys toys. And they're trying to get back to their own home, their own owner. And there's a certain point in the movie when Woody's about to give up and in despair. And he looks at the bottom of his shoe and, and written in a child's letters with the N reversed is the word Andy. And he remembers. He belongs. He belongs to someone. That's what it is for us. God writes his name on us. We belong to him. And there's nothing better than that. And so we have eternal life. We're promised that, and we're promised that God will never leave us. And and we'll know that all of creation will be our home, and justice will be done. And and we we belong to God totally and completely, and, and we'll be part of Jesus' inner circle. When he writes his new name on us, that means we'll know him just like he knows us. No longer will we be on the outside. We'll be on the inside. Have you been there in your life? Have you been on the outside? You know, the in-group that didn't accept you. The people who looked down on you and shunned you. The Christians in our world today who are mistreated and laughed at and ridiculed, they're all on the outside of those people. But when we're finally with Christ and Jesus writes his new name on us, not only does he tell us that we belong to him, but we're brought all the way inside. We belong. We're in. And nothing can ever separate us. Nothing will ever turn us out. Those are some awfully good promises. There's one more that's listed here, and, um, and, uh, and it's one that was communicated to the church at Thyatira. And, and it's really one that points, and I don't know if I can say it this way, but kind of to the end of eternity. And we know eternity never ends, but it points to that time as it stretches out before us. And Jesus says this. He said, to the one who overcomes I will give that one the morning star. And you know, that means one of two things. First, the, uh, the morning star really is a, a symbol of hope. And, and when heavens is setting, it can only mean that things just keep on getting better and better. See, to be given the morning star in heaven is, is like this. It's like being given a new car. The kind of car that you have always wanted. And that new car smell never fades away. And it always seems new and fresh and better every day. That's the first thing that it might mean. 
The second thing is, is that Jesus also refers to himself as the morning star, in which case it means that Jesus will give himself to us. I have to tell you, I think that's better than anything that there is. You know, I might like to have a new car, but I'd rather have my wife and my children, my family, my friends, my church. And see, all of those things, those good things, the people in our lives, all of those are summed up in Jesus Christ. And not only does he give us those, he gives us himself as well. And it seems to me that that because Jesus gives himself to us, that it really means both of those things. He gives himself to us and things will just keep on getting better and better and better. We don't know what that's like yet. We don't know what it's like. The new car rusts. And all that excitement when we got married changes. But that day is coming when everything will just be better and better and better. Those are promises that we find in those seven letters. You know, you just search the scriptures and you you can find all sorts of other promises. But these for us are what we're looking at because of where we are. Not mere words. They're truth. Jesus Christ will come again. Just as he came the first time, he will come again. Not as a baby born in a manger, but as King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there's something for each of us to look forward to. Eternal life. Justice. Belonging. The morning star. All of that is for us who believe. When you you read those passages, often it says the one who's victorious in the new NIV and older versions, the one who overcame. That's us. That's us who believe. Jesus Christ overcame by his death on the cross and his resurrection again. And when we put our faith in him, we overcome. And those promises are for us. And nobody here knows what tomorrow will bring. I know I've said it often because it's true. We see the very beginnings of the persecution of believers in our world today, in our country today. In other parts of the world, it's wide open. Thousands of people are suffering and dying weekly, if not daily. We don't know what our future holds for us in this nation, but we don't know whether there's persecution or not. What is coming? What hardship we might face? And those promises from God, they kind of collect us. 
They bring our thoughts, our fears, our hopes, our desires, and they just kind of line them up and they point us to where we need to be looking. This world is not our home. And one day, either Jesus will come back to us or we're going to go home and be with him. And if that's true, then how ought we to live? There's promises like this that help us to live the way we ought to live. Yeah, busy time of the year. We're going to have a ugly sweater contest right after the service. We've had parades. We'll have dinners. We'll have all sorts of things to keep us busy. And we have the promises of God that don't change. And they call us back to him time and time again. Hear them, embrace them, and rejoice in them. And Merry Christmas. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And um, Lord, for the promises that we find in your book, throughout your book. And Lord, you have never failed to keep one of them. Nor will you. Thank you. Help us, Lord to be overcomers. Help us to trust you. Help us to keep the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.